I love a good podcast, as you know, and I'm always happy to share resources for parents who are looking for creative, smart content that both entertains and offers enrichment for curious kids everywhere. So I'm happy to let you know about this awesome new show from the creators of the hit kids podcast, Who Smarted, and Netflix's Brainchild, The Adventurous World of Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as Math. Every episode follows Max and Molly, who have just been recruited into a secret order of problem solvers on an adventure through time, packed with puzzles, hidden equations, history, and laughs. The series explores themes that kids like ours love, like the stories behind math, critical thinking, code breaking, pattern solving, and more. And episodes transport kids into iconic periods in history like Pythagoras's Ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England. So cool. New episodes drop every Thursday and are about 15 minutes long, a perfect length for those car rides, for meal times, for break times, and bedtimes. What I love about this show is that it's kind of like listening to a book on tape. The story is captivating and includes lots of problems listeners can try to solve. The voice actors are fantastic, and the math concepts are seamlessly weaved into the narrative. It's exactly the kind of show Ash would have loved a few years ago, especially during our homeschool years, because finding that perfect blend of entertaining and educating, it isn't always easy. So tune into Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Parents and their own intersecting identities also impact how they're being read in the world, right? So having someone read you as an incompetent parent based on your race, right, at the restaurant and have those kinds of maybe even subtler ways, right, like how people give you the side eye, that that also like adds to the weight that parents are experiencing. I'm Debbie Reber and welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. We've talked a lot about advocating for our children on this show, but today we're adding the additional consideration of race to the conversation because we know that families raising differently wired kids of color experience additional roadblocks when it comes to getting support in all kinds of environments, fostering empowering neurodivergent identities, and much more. My guests for this conversation are Jaya Ramesh and Priya Saral authors of the brand new book, Parenting at the Intersections, Raising Neurodivergent Children of Color. Jaya and Priya came to this book through their lived experience as neurodivergent moms raising neurodivergent kids in this intersection of race, identity, and disability. Jaya is a psychotherapist in private practice specializing in supporting BIPOC neurodivergent individuals and couples in having more authentic relationships. She also supports organizations in creating an anti-racist culture in the workplace. And Priya is a play therapist and a parenting coach specializing in the emotional well-being of neurodivergent children and parents by helping them reconnect to their playful spirit amidst personal and structural adversity. Parenting at the Intersections is a wonderful book, and I did my best to explore some of the concepts they thoughtfully write about, including How Parenting at the Intersections Involves Navigating Multiple Marginalized Identities and Systems of Oppression, Why Identity Development is a Complex Process for Children at the Intersections, How Parents Can Create Conditions for Their Kids to be Seen and Respected, and the Ways in Which Advocating for Kids in the Education System Requires Awareness of Rights, Documentation, and Support from Organizations and Advocates. 
This is a rich conversation with a lot of food for thought. Whether you are parenting at the intersections yourself, or you want to better show up as an ally for multiply marginalized members of the neurodivergent community. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hey, Jaya and Priya, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. If you listen to my show, you may know that I always ask guests to introduce themselves. I've read your formal bio, but I kind of like to hear in your own words how you would describe the work that you do in the world. And as part of that, talk about your personal why. I know probably our whole conversation is going to be about your personal why in many ways, but let's start with introduction. So Jaya, could you tell us a little bit more about you and then we'll go to you, Priya. Yeah, sure. So I am originally from India. I immigrated here when I was young and I've lived both in the East Coast and now make my home outside of Seattle. And I also identify as a, as a neurodivergent person. And I'm raising two kids with my partner now almost of 20 years. One's a teenager and one's in elementary school. We also have a, a dog we're pretty sure is neurodivergent. And yeah, in my professional hat that I wear, I am a mental health therapist and I primarily work with adults and couples who are multiply marginalized by either neurodivergence or race or gender or different aspects. Also do some work around supporting smaller organizations and becoming more anti-oppressive. I'm really happy to be here today. Thank you. And how about you, Priya? Thanks, Debbie. I am also a mom. I have a twin son who just turned 12 and I recently inherited a title from him uh, a couple of days ago. He said, uh, I think it's your birthday too today because you you were born too. And I thought that was a very profound thing to receive on his birthday. So I am a 12-year-old mom <laughs> and have really embarked on quite a discovery uh, in parenting and, and that propelled a self-discovery process for myself too in connecting the experiences of raising a neurodivergent child with my own experiences as a neurodivergent person and I was identified before I became a parent but I, I think we make meaning of it in layers and definitely parenting was a big portal into me understanding my neurodivergence more. I also have a neurodivergent dog too and Coco and Bagels are best friends and they have their ND radars pinging, I know. <laughs> I am also a first-generation immigrant. I'm born in India as well. So Jen, I have actually lots of uh, commonalities. came to the, the U.S. as a young adult and I think a lot of factors led me to really, really understand myself and who the work I really wanted to do. And that was, you know, a very roundabout process for me. I, I came to social work, a clinical social work, and then mental health work with children at various different points in my career. And I just absolutely fell in love with uh, working with children in, in a way where in a dyadic form and in a family-centered form, it was also a really good fit for my nervous system and the way in which I can be the best support to, to people. And I, yeah, I just really, I think I found my, my calling. And I think as I started working with children, a lot of whom were neurodivergent and a lot of whom are uh, of color, 
I started to see that the work was very incomplete without supporting parents in in that journey. I call myself a parenting coach. I, I have run uh, groups and really enjoy doing that work of parent support as well. You know, yeah, glad to be here. And we, Jay and I found each other um, as colleagues that quickly grew into friendship and and found ourselves uh, writing a book. So uh, that's another new hat that we are wearing now as authors. That's great. Well, thank you for that. Before we move on, I have to say that I have a neurodivergent cat. Okay, so I'm just like sure they would all get along in some capacity. You started to to talk about this, Priya, but I'd really love to know a little bit more about the impetus for the book that is coming out right now as listeners are listening to this episode. You have a new book. It's called Parenting at the Intersections, Raising Neurodivergent Children of Color. We'll talk about the book, which is such a needed resource. I'm so excited that you're getting it out into the world, but I'd, I'd love to know how did it come together? Well, I can kick us off. We were connected with an agent who has a a neurodivergent black child and found that there were books missing speaking about this experience. And so we were invited to to write the book. <laughs> so we, you know, totally appreciate how rare that is and that many people spend years pitching books and writing, feeling very grateful for that opportunity. So that's sort of the birth story in the book, the book that way. Maybe we'll also just speak a little bit to our own personal motivations for saying yes to this invitation, right? We don't always say yes to the things that are presented to us. And so for me, when my husband and I first found out that our older child had ADHD, but also was highly gifted, navigating that 2E diagnosis, we felt the resources we were finding were not actually speaking fully to our experiences. They were touching on some of it. But there was maybe a presumed assumption of commonality that didn't acknowledge for things like race and immigration and the impacts of, you know, systemic oppression on folks like us. So what really motivated was, you know, to write the book so that parents who might be in sort of a similar place of wanting to have their experiences reflected that really captured just all the different pieces was what was really motivating me. Yeah, I think... A big part of the why for me was my own experiences growing up in a context in a time where neurodivergence was not recognized. It was really not, and hence not supported. And, but also as a, as an immigrant family growing up in uh, Singapore at the time, I really grew up in a, an academic environment and a context where because it wasn't recognized, I really struggled in big ways to fit the mold of a compliant child and not just a compliant child, but a compliant child that can excel in academic, within the pressure of academic, uh, academic rigor and in these institutions. I sort of absorbed these messages and had no way to give uh, a name to that, to identify that and to really be able to, to see that this was something that was happening outside of me and it's not my fault that I was feeling this way. And I really struggled to fit in that single version of of what I was expected to be. And then now having more distance from that and having so much more experience as a parent and really seeing my journey unfold, I have so much more compassion for the place where I was in, but also the people that cared for me. Of course, my parents did their very best and nobody was 
able to support them to to be able to see this differently and to support me differently. I think in a way I co-wrote, I said yes to this book with Jed so that we could write the book that I wish my parents had, you know, raising me. Yeah, it's interesting as you're talking, I'm thinking about when I first started Tilt Parenting, one of my frustrations was that within the parenting space, there were so few resources. I was reading all these kind of general parenting books, and I'm like, this doesn't apply to me. There were very few books out there kind of looking at neurodivergence as a bigger thing. It was like, you're ADHD problem child, here's what to do kind of thing. And now here we're at the place where now there's a lot more books on neurodivergence and those books aren't speaking to the experience of parents raising kids of color. So it's slow progress. I've been talking to parents for years and years and wanting what this book has to offer. So that's why I'm so grateful and excited that an agent came to you and saw the need and asked you and that you said yes. I'd love if you could talk a little bit about the process of writing the book too. One of the things that struck me when I started reading it was just how thoughtful and intentional and conscious you were of the voices you were bringing into the book and the language that you used and really setting this very respectful framework for the reader. And I'd love to know just a little bit about how did you navigate that? It's hard to write a book and it's clear that you put so much thought into this book that's coming out. I think this was a very iterative process for us, the pages that we begin the book with. And I think those, those are the pages you're perhaps speaking to Debbie, where we really lay out the tone for the book, the way that we approach this book intentionally, not as experts, but as co-creators, as facilitators of, of people's stories and storytellers as, uh, you know, to amplify the voices of people who are raising children at this intersection. And I think one of the things that really felt very clear to us at the, at the beginning, as you said, is, is to approach this, even though we are professionals in the field, we also really wanted to decenter ourselves in an expert kind of way, because it's really so prevalent out there where especially parents at the margins are being told what to do and how to do it. And that is really what we did not want to to add to with this book coming out. And it's not very typical, as you're saying, because parenting books are really about what to do and how do you pick up your child and what to say to them so that, you know, you guys will uh, feel better in the moment. But but really, I think even though there are glimpses of guidelines of perhaps how to have conversations and how to, to center yourself and how to center your child, those are scattered through the book. We really wanted to to kind of convey that parents have the wisdom inherent within them, that this this book really encourages parents to lead through to firstly to name the oppressive forces that they are parenting within and how that has contributed to the erasure of intuition and being able to know and to really connect with their own inner wisdom of what is needed for their child and for themselves. And so I think that's one of the, the frameworks we were very clear on at the very beginning. Jay, I'd love to, to pass it to you too. Yeah, I I love this question about also process. So thank you for surfacing that because it's, you know, we so often, I think, just look at the final outcome and then here's the book, but there's a whole two years of our lives that we really dedicated to this. And think things that really stick out for me is that we intentionally, between us, committed to create a, a listening 
environment where we took time to actually process our feelings before we even delved into the work. When we found ways to even approach our our effort and our, I think there was a lot of conversation and I think beautiful conversations that Priya and I've had that sadly, I think, you know, the readers won't get to see, but they see more in sort of the manifestation of the book, but negotiating things like how we hold time and how we hold labor and really making room for both of our humanity to be present and to do the work in the ways that we're actually talking about too, in terms of parenting, of what can feel more liberatory. Right. And giving that space for us to also notice, I think, the ways that supremacy culture or colonialism or capitalism really also kind of have the grips on us. Right. And that when you're working within the context of a publishing system, there are these deadlines and things like that. Right. And so, yeah, so I think part of that, you know, for us, that that process of actually talking and living into the very thing we're talking about felt super rich and continues to feel really rich. Yeah. So that's, I think, the only other piece I want to add to that. May I also add that I think as two neurodivergent people, writing a book together and working on a project so intimately over two years, I'm so proud that we did this together. It has been the hardest professional undertaking I've done in my life. And the most rewarding. I'm tearing up thinking about this because I think it's been that part of our work together. I don't think it comes through in the book because that's not really what we're centering in the book. But I think being on a podcast and where parents and hopefully other folks get to listen to this, that I think it really was very affirming for me. And I think for you too, Jaya, but to really know that neurodivergent people can create meaningful things and they don't have to do it alone. And I think that was one of my roadblocks for a very long time, but I felt very alone in my head and my processes that I would have so many ideas in my head never that never got materialized because I felt so alone. And I genuinely feel like we've evolved so much over the last two years. And so even when I think about the book, we add version one and 1.1 and 1.2, fast forward to two years, it's a completely different book because each time we had the conversation about how we felt about it or what we needed to come back to, we went back and wrote a few things more, edited more of what we wrote. And so it has really been an iterative process and it's just so rich what neurodivergence can bring to the table. Yeah. I'm just so touched that you share that with us. Thank you. I wish listeners could see you right now and you're kind of glowing and beautiful and emotional and it's very moving. I think rich is the word. I think the book itself, it feels so different from so many other parenting books, Parents for Neurodivergent Kids. And I think it's all of what you're talking about coming through. It's very exciting. I want to talk about some of the common experiences that parents kind of parenting at the intersections experience. And we'll do that right after a quick break. So in our house these days, Darren and I have been working together to up-level our nutrition and healthy lifestyle habits. Maybe it's our age, our changing bodies, my shifting hormones, whatever the reason, I'm here for it. And that's why I'm loving Green Chef, a meal company that makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. 
Green Chef offers gut-friendly recipes each week and is committed to providing a holistic approach to nutrition by offering meals that contribute to the overall well-being of your entire body. Darren and I are particularly big fans of their nutrient-dense, science-backed gut and brain health recipes, developed in partnership with registered dietitians that improve digestion, reduce bloat, and also boost energy and immunity. This week's favorites? turkey, black bean, and sweet potato chili, and the Baja chicken bowls with mango salsa. I mean, don't those sound delicious? But if that's not your thing, you can choose from a variety of customized meals to suit your lifestyles with preferences like keto, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, gluten-free, and protein-packed. Whatever you choose, you'll get farm-fresh ingredients, organic whole fruits and veggies, and premium proteins, along with chef-crafted, nutritionist-approved recipes delivered straight to your door. Go to greenchef.com slash 60tilt and use code 60tilt to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's 60% off plus 20% off your next two months when you use the code 60tilt at greenchef.com slash 60tilt. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body, and so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com tilt for 25% off. I would love if you could share with listeners what some of the common experiences parenting within these systems of oppression, what are some of the things that parents at the margins may regularly experience The parents who aren't living that experience may not be aware of? And I think to, to answer that question, Debbie, it's a, you know, it's a good question. I want to just kind of pull back a little bit to maybe make the connection of what engenders those feelings or experiences that parents may have. And one of the things and as pre alluded to is that we situate and place parenting within larger systems of oppression, right? So one of the things we do is we take the really sort of big and sometimes, you know, overwhelming concepts like settler colonialism or white supremacy, right? And break it down for our readers so that we can actually see the through line of how they might show up in our day to day and how we've all sort of taken that in. And that when we are raising multiply marginalized children around neurodivergence and race and gender and all of those different pieces, right? I mean, here in this book, we're really focusing on neurodivergence and race, but that can be expanded out. 
that our children's quote-unquote non-compliance to the norm or the standard that is defined through these systems, right, presents us as parents as an opportunity to begin to unpack, investigate these messages that we've taken in. We interviewed over 30 families and people were sort of all along the spectrum of experiences and feelings, right? So there were parents who expressed a lot of grief, right? Expressed a lot of like sadness, especially coming, you know, if they were coming from immigrant cultures where you're already sort of striving to belong, that your child's difference could, you know, pose a threat to that belonging. We interviewed parents who were fully like embracing and just like, okay, this is, and they were feeling the joy around raising their kids with neurodivergence. So we could sort of go, you know, like there was people were sort of all over in terms of that. One thing that regardless that we consistently heard from parents was the loneliness, right? Not being fully understood as a parent of the struggles of trying to not only be there for your child, make your marriage work, navigate the educational system, navigate the medical system. And then if you're a Black parent, like really also worrying about the implications of the juvenile justice, the carceral system, right? And also defending and explaining your child to even just your family who you would hope would get it. So there's a lot of advocacy and a lot of loneliness, And so part of our hope and wish in this book is that parents who do pick this up will see themselves reflected and know that there is this larger community out there who just, we get it. We get it. Did you have anything to add to that, Priya? I think the experiences that parents feel are not just located or linked to one location, right? It's all around and all, it's at the grocery store, it's at school, it's at, if there's police involvement, there's, there's a criminal justice system right there. And it's exhausting and it's exhausting. And sometimes the question of advocacy is just, it just feels momentous and too much. And, and so we also do want to say to parents, and we say this in the book that, where you are is okay. How you choose is okay. If you're not able to step up to advocate for your child, we understand and we are okay. There are so many constraints and factors that weigh parents down and, and the situ- that the context that just the situated parenting in it impacts parents on, on, on an everyday basis. And it's, it really does impact the way they show up. For themselves, the way they show up for their kids, and some days they'll have more energy to rise above those pressures, and some days they may not have that energy. And we just want parents to know that there are people alongside with them at every part of that spectrum. The other piece, as you're saying, that is coming to me is that parents and their own intersecting identities also impact how they're being read in the world, right? So having someone read you as an incompetent parent based on your race, right, at the restaurant and have those kinds of maybe even subtler ways, right, like how people give you the side eye, that that also like adds to the weight that parents are experiencing. I mean, you described that so well, and you can just feel that sense of loneliness and the pervasiveness of that experience of being in so many spaces, being misunderstood, being judged, being dismissed, being marginalized. And so, In terms of the parents who are reading your book who 
are really strongly identifying with that experience. Is it about being seen? Is it about that sense of we see you, we know what this is like? Tell me a little bit about how you hope that readers who are identifying with this experience will use your book and will feel as a result of reading it. You're right. It's not a prescriptive, right? Like one, two, three, and you're fixed. So maybe because we're both in the mental health field therapists, you know, we, we do believe that reflection and validation is very key for any kind of change to happen. And the awareness of making those connections of, oh, this isn't actually mine. This is something that is some systemic that I'm holding. In every chapter throughout the book, we offer both somatic practices as well as questions for self-inquiry. Because what largely colonialism has done is disconnected us from our ancestry, our intuition, land, all of those things, right? So the hope is that by engaging in those questions and those somatic practices, that parents can really tap into their not only ancestral wisdom, but their intuition and be in right relationship with the messages that feel so prevalent, right? That's something I'm noticing as I'm, you know, as I was telling you earlier about, as we're talking to our older kid about college and like, what is success and what does it mean to launch, right? And so really having to notice my messaging around that coming from an immigrant background. I think I'll add that so many parents we interviewed have made different decisions about similar places in their life and in their parenting. And we do want parents to know that there's no one right way to do things. There are multiple right ways. And I think that is a way to disrupt the binary that oppression puts us in and systems above us put us in and to be able to see a multitude of experiences and so many colorful ways of raising children is really important to parents feeling seen and invalid for their choices that they're making. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, I want to talk a little bit about identity and how parents raising kids of color can support them in their identity development, because that's a lot of what you talk about in the book. So we'll do that when we get right back. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. 
Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder. And I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better. You do talk a lot in the book about masking, about identity development. We know that for young people, identity development is part of their job. It's what they do. And there are a lot more complications when you are a kid of color, when you're in multiple marginalized identities, as you're talking about. So how can parents create the conditions for their kids to really give a voice to who they are as they're navigating this in very complex times with very complex realities of being a child who's living in those intersections? I think as you're parenting, your child is discovering who they are at every stage of their development, right? And when we think about identity development, and in the book, we speak to both the processes of discovering who you are as a person of color, as a young person of color growing up in this context, but also discovering who you are as a neurodivergent person as well. And it starts really early, right? The idea of who you are and being seen as different and feeling different in the world starts early for, for our children. And one of the things that we mention in the book, which I think really hit me as, as we wrote this is that our children do not have the privilege of discovering themselves and how they want to identify themselves because the world often identifies them for them. Labels are placed on our children so young, just based on their behavior, just based on the color of their skin. And there's no luxury of time in one way for parents to say, hey, you know, I want to take my sweet time to talk about this. Because they're already learning that if you're the kid that is making the noise and being disruptive and in school, you are more likely as a black child to be pulled out than, than a white kid who's being disruptive. And so they know they have a felt experience and a felt sense of what it's like to be marginalized already, right? I think we also want to meet parents where they are and in, in, in their development of understanding and supporting their children's development. Because for as many of us as parents, and I can also speak for myself, that we didn't have these conversations at the dinner table growing up. Right? My parents never talked to me about being brown. And I also grew up with class privilege and caste privilege. And we you know, had the privilege of not being othered in, in many ways as well. But I, I think having grown up in these contexts where I didn't have these conversations happen with me, it has been a very new experience for me as a parent to start to have them or to have them with my child. And so that's been a growth and a, and a process for me as well. So I think we speak to both of that. 
I really appreciate what you're saying about there's two developmental processes happening at the same time. One is the child's and one is the parent's, right? And so if identity development ultimately is if we're supporting that as parents for our children, I think of it as how do I get my kid to accept and love who they are? That's to me, the whole process of identity development is landing in your body and knowing you're okay. And that my role as a parent, and we heard so many parents speak to this, is that the world, you know, will keep holding up a broken mirror to you. I'm going to hold up a different one. I'm going to surround you with literature and movies and art and music and people who reflect that and affirm it. And as Priya was saying, it's like from a very early age, they're already targeted. They're marked right? And they're scrutinized, various levels. So my kids may be not as scrutinized as maybe their black peers, right? But they're scrutinized. And then if as a parent, right, developmentally, neurodivergence is like, I'm seeing that as something that's not okay, then how that clashes with how I affirm my child's identity development is going to be sticky. And We're not here to judge or say one way is the right way. I think that's really a a gift that we want to keep offering is where you are is okay. You're on a journey and it's not where anyone is more involved or the other, but there's a journey that everyone's walking and we can't really skip the steps. And so just to sort of wrap that up is we see parents raising multiply marginalized children as map makers because the models were given don't apply to our kids. It actually, I think, provokes more anxiety to use those models, right? I would love to, before we wrap up, just talk about education for a minute. Could be its own podcast and maybe we'll have to do another conversation just about that. But we know the statistics. And as you mentioned, kids of color are much more likely to be disinvited from schools, to be punished, to be seen as behavioral challenges. That would might be the default as opposed to looking for some sort of neurodivergence. I've heard from so many parents who feel just exhausted and wanting to know how do I advocate for my child in a school system, knowing that they're being targeted. I don't have answers for that. I'm the white parent of a white child, and I know how exhausted I am and have been advocating in the school system. So with those additional considerations, what advice do you have for parents in making sure that their kids are seen and respected in a traditional educational model? And is it possible? Great question. Yeah. So my kids go to public school. And a lot of the parents we interviewed for this book also have kids in public schools. So I just want to first start by saying the, the types of advocacy, the amount of advocacy you do is a lot. And it almost feels like nonstop. And you have to be vigilant as a parent to what may be getting missed. And so I just want to really kind of affirm that piece of it. I'm, I'm not sure if it's advice, but one of the folks that we interviewed for the book who runs an organization, I think it's in West Virginia or Virginia, I'm not remembering exactly, and I'm happy to follow up and find the name out. She helped us really sort of develop, you know, things that parents need to be attuned to in this process around 504 IEPs, right? Rights that parents have, the like importance of documenting everything that was said, and having people in the room with you who are 
literally like your advocates and I'm going to be there to go not only witness what's happening, but also go to bat, right? And I want to tie that back to something that I think Priya was also, you know, saying about, you know, the example of her kid, which is we have to work within the systems we're in, yes. And when our children have behaviors that are being coded as disruptive or non-engaging or avoidant or, you know, there's all these labels that it's very easy for us as parents to just feel like, well, why can't you just be easy? Why aren't you just doing the thing that's being asked of you? And if we can feel supported and resourced enough, then maybe hear those behaviors as actually communicating something very, very profound, not only about their needs, but about the system itself, right? And so I'm just holding the tension of, yes, there are things you want to do so that your child can access the learning that they need to in the system. And like, it's not your kid and it's not you, right? It's like a really big, almost Herculean task to take on such a deeply entrenched colonial system that was not meant for learners that are differently wired, (laughs) right? But really the project of education is to continue to produce the ideal citizen who can go out and become better producers and consumers. So I'm just holding that tension. How about you, Pri? What do you think? Yeah, I think you answered that beautifully. And I just want to just reiterate that Cheryl Poe, who is the person that helped us think a little bit more about sort of the, some of, some, you know, these are, this is one section where we do offer some concrete tips for parents and it's in the appendix of our book. And one of the things that she, well, she has many things to offer. And if, if listeners have a chance to check out Cheryl Poe and her organization's Advocating for Kids, and um, that's a great resource. I'm happy to offer that to you to put on the show notes as well. But really, I think the sense for what she does for her community is really building support for parents. And I think it can, like you, like Jay is saying, it feels momentous to be uh, against a big system fighting for your rights. And oftentimes, parents at the margins don't have the luxury to look up and know what their rights are in the first place. And so it's so easy to be overridden by the system. That's why people like Cheryl Poe are so important to to help us become aware and to know that parents are not alone, that there are people who can support them on this journey as a school special education advocate, or there are also, we've discovered over the writing process, there are so many organizations around the U.S. that have a community-oriented spirit to really building a, a sort of mass presence where there is peer advocacy, there is emotional support that gives parents the strength to to take baby steps towards standing up for their child's equitable rights. Yeah. So one thing that, you know, I do want to say that, you know, we mentioned documenting, but I think the other thing is never have your kids sign anything without your presence. Like that was a really important tip from Cheryl, right? On protecting your child's rights and that they should not be talked to without you present. It seems that you would want the school to honor those fundamental rights, but just actually having that in the 504 IEP, I think of like, I need to be there for the whatever documents getting signed. So that's something more practical. I also remember the, the documentation that school public schools often begin the year with a code of conduct, 
that that is where parents are asked to sign sort of a statement where they they say that they're consenting to to knowing that their child might be punished for any behaviors that may impede yeah the the education of other peers perhaps or something like that and there's language that she provides and we've included that in the in the appendix where parents she encourages parents to write in a couple of lines there before signing it to say I I'm unable to sign this because I can't guarantee that my child can abide by this code due to their disability and having those protections in place before you sign anything can be really protective for your child. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And I actually want to also just let listeners know that I, you talk in the book about unschooling also as a form of resistance. And I had Akila Richards on the podcast last year talking about raising free people. So it's too much to go into right now, but I'm going to have a link to that episode in the show notes. It's a great book. It was a great conversation. I guess I'm curious to know for parents who aren't raising children of color, what can we do? And are they part of the readership for your book? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because we don't live in silos. And we really believe that in this very specific experience, there is also something universal for us all to take in. And we need our our communities, right? Whether it's our educators, our families, our neighbors, to know this experience so that it mitigates the loneliness that we feel, right? What a gift I think these 30 families are giving to the readers, to letting people into to their lives. Yeah. So thanks for asking that. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is such a readable book. And I really loved the profiles and the stories and the anecdotes of the families that you shared. And yes, we all have to be doing this work together. There are no silos. Priya, you wanted to add something. I think when we come to this, intersection or just the experience of parents raising children who are multiply marginalized in many ways, we're really thinking about um, a trauma-sensitive approach to parenting. And when we think about it that way, it's really applicable to any parent. If we could raise our children the way that parents at the margins can raise their children, I think we will have liberation for all, I think. Well, Your book is a huge step forward. Again, listeners, it's called Parenting at the Intersections, Raising Neurodivergent Children of Color. Where should listeners go to learn more about you and about the book? We have a couple of places. We have a versioning in Instagram present, slowly. <laughs> and um, we are we have a website as well, parentingattheintersections.com, that has podcasts we've done, upcoming events. Yeah, and then the book is available for pre-order now on bookseller sites. Well, I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for sharing with me in advance. You reached out to me quite a long time ago. And thank you also for your patience with my slow reading and response time. I get inundated here, but I'm so glad that I had the chance to read your book. I'm so glad to have this conversation with you. And I would love to continue the conversation because we really just scratched the surface and your book, it is such a gift, such a rich resource. So congratulations and thank you again for today. Thank you so much, Debbie. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. If you want to learn more about today's guest and the resources we talked about, 
you can always go to the extensive show notes page on tiltparenting.com. There you'll find key takeaways, links to all the resources that were discussed, and even a full transcript of our conversation. Just go to tiltparenting.com slash podcast and select this episode. The Tilt Parenting Podcast is hosted by me, Debbie Reber, author of the book Differently Wired and the founder of Tilt Parenting. And it was edited by my wonderful producer, Andrea Curtis Amasquita. If you want to support this show, please consider joining my Patreon campaign and making a small monthly contribution. Just go to patreon.com slash Tilt Parenting to learn more. If you want to follow Tilt on social media, go to at Tilt Parenting on Instagram and Facebook. Lastly, please take a minute to leave a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. That helps the show stay visible so others can easily find it. Thanks so much. And that's all for this week. Stay safe, stay well, and take good care. And for more information about any of the parenting resources Tilt offers, visit TiltParenting.com. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder. And I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better.